Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast, the pop culture podcast. Well, let's just do it. Let's just do it ideas. fresh. <laughs> I was willing to keep going. Fine. This is the one point where we could do it as clean as we want. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, a librarian and cat wrangler, and I am here as always with my co-host. I'm Pete Romberg, curriculum developer and house hunter. Uh, it was Martha's, Martha's turn a couple months ago, now it's my turn. Success! Yeah. Very excited for you guys. Yes, fingers, fingers crossed. Although, so so, sorry that here. you weren't able to drag oh. us down to Chicago. <laughs> I did have that selfish thought <laughs> when you told me that you guys were in the market. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I'm surprised, but I am disappointed. <laughs> Although I'm less disappointed than I would be if you guys had ended up moving ended up moving up to Minnesota. Yes, definitely. Which was a fear of mine. <laughs> yeah, that that would have been a a tougher a tougher situation across the board. We are here tonight. We are diverging just a, a touch from our normal MO uh, to take a deep dive into the pop culture relevance and cultural iconography of one of our one of media's most enduring and indelible characters. Tonight we are talking about Hannibal Lecter in all of his various incarnations. Uh, and media projects. But before we get into that, it is only fair that we discuss uh, the piece of media and or pop culture that is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, and I'm going to have Pete go first because mine is actually closer related to our topic of the evening uh, than I was really thinking about when I wrote it down. So Pete, why don't you go ahead and tell us what's stuck <laughs> in your head today? Um, so you're actually the reason that this is stuck in my head. Uh, I've just started reading. Um, I, I just started reading this weekend and already I'm 100 pages in, but that's only like a seventh of the book it's like at an, most. Yeah. It's like an 800 page book. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Neil Stevenson's new book that came out last, no, uh, this past November, Termination Shock. Uh, Neil Stevenson, uh, famous among nerd circles, wrote books, uh, has written books such as The Cryptonomicon, uh, Snow Crash, um, uh, my personal favorite, Anathem, uh, which is a wild one, um, and, and many others. Uh, he's a big old... Um, writes doorstopper heavy sci sci-fi books and this is his most recent about um a near future earth where climate change has significantly altered human society uh and follows the attempts of a solar geoengineering scheme um that's based on the wiki um Martha you directed me towards this because you thought it would be an interesting combination with a recent homework of ours namely the Ministry for the Future uh, and already I'm seeing um, connections such as for example the geoengineering scheme specifically is referencing the Pinot Tubo uh, volcanic explosion which is also uh, you know that was referenced early on in Ministry of the Future um, and some of what, what India was doing after their global heat wave in Ministry of the Future seems to be the crux of this uh, this book. Um, like I said, I'm a hundred pages in and like the plot hasn't even gotten started yet. So, you know, that's cool, but I'm enjoying hang spending time with the characters that he's created. Uh, one of whom is the queen of Denmark. So, uh, not Denmark, uh, the Netherlands. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I have not read this book. Um, I did put it on a reading list. I'm doing theme months at the library f- as part of our year long reading challenge. Uh, and I put this book on our reading list for um, April because April is when Earth Day is and we were doing a lot of conservation themed stuff. Um, and I read the indoor, I read the interior flap and I was like, oh, this sounds an awful lot like the ministry for the future, <laughs> but maybe more um, grounded nihilistic? in reality. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, when we were talking about ministry for the future, uh, Francis Fukuyama gave it a pretty bad review saying that, that Kim Stanley Robinson basically assumed every good outcome at every fork in the road. Um, his review of this book is, was much more favorable. He compared it favorably in comparison to Ministry for the Future, saying this was a lot more, yeah, maybe nihilistic, maybe grounded or realistic, um, less less optimistic at the very least. Uh, and I, I love Neil Stevenson, so I'd, I'd kind of forgotten that this had come out, so when you reminded me, I was like, oh, yeah, that's going to the top of my reading list. Great. <laughs> uh, what is stuck in your head? Um, or around so... your neck, or whatever. Uh, So somebody is publishing a newsletter, a Substack, or yeah, I think it's a Substack newsletter. Uh, Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mm -hmm. is an epistolary novel where all of the materials in it are dated, and the novel takes place um, over a period that happens between May and November. So what this person running the newsletter is doing is sending us a daily email with the portion of Dracula retyped that happens on that day in the book. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, so that is part one. So every day I get a letter. So right now we're still in Transylvania. So poor Jonathan Harker is trapped in Dracula's castle. Uh, and every once in a while, we also get a letter from Mina or Lucy. Um, and the other thing that is happening is that Tumblr is reading Dracula frequently oh, oh, for the boy. first time. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, no. It's incredible. No, no. That's I, I get to be. Yeah. I am part of a massive online book club of people discovering how amazing the Dracula book is. For the first time, I cannot wait for these people to meet Quincy Morris, famous cowboy. Yes. It's like, was he the one played by uh, Carrie Ellis in um, Coppola's Dracula? I don't think he was in Coppola's Dracula. He was. He wasn't Elvis, though, because he would have played the the fussy British guy. Um, So Dracula is a book that is so frequently... Like, I, I don't believe anybody has properly done adaptational justice to this book. Like Billy Campbell too, played him in uh, Coppola's. Yeah. Too much gets left out. Too many characters get combined. Everybody does Lucy dirty. Like, I, I just don't understand why people have decided it is so hard to just make a straight up and down adaptation of Dracula. But anyway, I am loving everybody's reactions to this book. I'm loving the fan art. I'm loving the tags. And I love getting a little newsletter every day that is an email update from my very good friend, Jonathan Harker. <laughs> About how his uh, vacation in Transylvania has taken a turn for the, the worse. Oh, and the he's, creepy. Not, he's, 
He's not on vacation. Oh, I know. He's, he's a on solicitor a work there. He's on a business trip. He is, he is the baby solicitor who has been sent to deal with his law firm's weirdest client. <laughs> and uh, on May 16th uh, is when he goes on an unfortunate exploratory trip in Dracula's castle to the parts of it that mm-hmm. Dracula told him were off limits. <laughs> is that when he meets, meets- uh, the wives? Yes. Great. <laughs> uh, so that is great fun. And that is called Dracula Daily, if anybody is looking uh, to subscribe to that. Um, the other wonderful thing that has popped up around this is that people are now talking about doing this with other novels. So I have already signed up for the three-year-long odyssey that will be Moby Dick delivered oh to God. me <laughs> in true-to-time increments. <laughs> I know, um, it is I know very... you love Moby Dick. Would it be a I good audio book? Or is it one of those things oh, where like... Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. If I find a good narrator, and maybe I'll... audio will make it harder for you to skip the absolutely deadly important in um, interval chapters that are all about whaling. Oh, don't worry. That is a selling point <laughs> for me, not eternal. Yes. <laughs> I yes. want to know how you harvest some ambergris. Um... Speaking of, I just started listening to This Is How You Lose the Time War. Um, yes! I'm, I'm like 30 minutes in, but it's only four and a half hours long. So I guess I was going to say, so you're I've, like, I've a read quarter two of the letters. <laughs> I've, I've read one letter by red and one letter by blue. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. Al- already loving it. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about a myriad of Hannibal's. So today, Pete is doing me a solid and letting me get extremely self-indulgent on one of my favorite characters in pop culture history, Hannibal Lecter. It t- uh, I think I, I was the was... one who suggested this idea as a birthday gift for you. <laughs> Which I appreciated. Um, just a quick rundown of the history that this character has in both uh, print and film media. So in 1981, Thomas Harris publishes Red Dragon, which is the first appearance of Hannibal Lecter. Um, In 1986, Manhunter, the the first film adaptation of Red Dragon, is released. Uh, It is directed by Michael Mann and stars Brian Cox as Hannibal and William Peterson as Will Graham, his uh, sort of opposition on the FBI. In 1988, Silence of the Lambs, the book is published, and in 1991, it is turned into the multi-Oscar award-winning film starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. It, it won uh, the five, the big five. It did, and Anthony and Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor, even though he's in a total of like 12 minutes of the movie. That's that's nonsense, though. The whole he's in 12 minutes of it. <laughs> Whatever, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
1999, Hannibal, the third book in the series, is published. Uh, and in 2001, it is adapted into a movie, again starring Anthony Hopkins, but this time starring... Um, uh, someone replaced Jodie Foster. It is... Yes. Um, Jodie Foster declined to return and was replaced Julianne by... Moore. Julianne Moore, and it was directed by Ridley Scott. Um, and in 2002, we return to Red Dragon, this time uh, with Anthony Hopkins again in the Hannibal role and starring Edward Norton as Will Graham. Unfortunately, directed by Brett Ratner. Also true. That movie, we are going to come back to that movie. Um, in 2006, Hannibal Rising, a prequel book about Hannibal Lecter as a child, is released, well, as a teen, uh, is released. And in 2007, the movie adaptation starring Gaspard Ulliel is released. And in 2013, Brian Fuller uh, releases the first season of his TV show, Hannibal, starring Mads Mikkelsen as Hannibal and Hugh Dancy as Will Graham. Uh, this three-season show is a loose, loose, loose adaptation of... Um, the Hannibal Lecter material largely taking place before anybody knows that Hannibal Lecter is Hannibal Lecter. By the, by the final season, we're getting into Red Dragon territory, but it's sort of all of the prequel to Red Dragon. Yeah, it's all sort of um, mixed up. There's a lot of homage to Silence the Lambs. Um, Brian Fuller was not Brian Fuller and his production company were not able to get the rights to the Silence of the Lambs material, so they had to kind of talk around it quite because a bit. The, the fun part is that Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs, and Hannibal were all uh, produced by different production companies with different rights, but the the De Laurentiis have overarching rights of some things, but not other things. Um, it's very it's very silly. Yeah, and it is one of the reasons that Manhunter was shelved almost immediately after its theatrical release, meaning that not a whole lot of people saw that movie at the time that it was uh, dropped. So, to recap, we have four different actors playing Hannibal Lecter at different times of his life. Um, we have three different actors playing Will Graham at largely the same time in his life. Uh, we have a multitude of production companies and directors and Clarice Starlings all getting their mitts on this character. And I think and, the and biggest Jack, Jack question... Crawford's as well. Oh my god, Jack Crawford. I love and, Lawrence Fishburne so much. I love him, but I also love Dennis Farina, and I love uh, uh, Scott Glenn. Like, I love all three Scott, Jack Crawford. I was going to say, Scott Glenn is great. Yes. We also have... Um, three different adaptations, two or three adaptations of Freddie Lowndes. Three adaptations very, of Freddie Lowndes. Um, and at least two of Alan or Alana Bloom, mm -hmm. uh, Will Graham's contemporary. At least two um, of uh, Frederick Chilton, the uh, head of the Psychiatric Institute that um, eventually Hannibal ends up in. Oof, Raul Esparza. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Yeah, so my overarching question that I want us to kind of approach through this conversation is why? What is it about this character that we as a people have found compelling for over 30 years of movie making? So Not 30 I, years of movie making, but 30 years of pop culture. I, I got bad news. Uh, 
all like 35 years um part of it well, I, 19, I, i'm thinking 1981 to now oh well then i have even worse news for you that's 40 years <laughs> no it's not almost yeah no that's over 40 years oh i can't do math you're right yeah. <laughs> um, the 90s were only 10 years ago yeah yeah no you're right it was 20 years ago that uh the, the first book came out <laughs> in 1981 um <laughs> yeah, so so 40 years 40 years of stories so um, i i think I, part of it is the silence of the lambs was such an absolute it was a surprise breakout hit and it was an overwhelming breakout hit uh, we were saying off air that it basically single-handedly created the modern day serial killer show and also podcasts as an industry um and so once that became what it was it doesn't surprise me everything that came after um the most surprising part is that there wasn't any sort of follow-up until almost 10 years later. Um, 10 years for a movie, uh, what, eight years for a book follow-up. Um, the the somewhat more surprising is that Silence of the Lambs um, even exists, like, because that had to, to work on the strength of, you know, Red Dragon and Manhunter. So clearly something was very interested like very captivating by these characters even before anthony hopkins and jonathan demi uh you know sort of took over what we as a pop culture all just instantly think of when we think of hannibal lecter but also i don't think we can kind of skip over the impact that the silence of the lambs movie had because that is a movie that superficially should not have been as indelible like it should not have turned out as indelible to our pop culture as it is no like it was, it was released on valentine's weekend like it was it was dumped in the middle of winter it was not supposed to be it was not a prestige and, picture and it was not going to be a blockbuster picture and then it turned out to be both and it was one of the few genre movies to not only get critical attention and oscar attention but to win best picture like mm -hmm. anybody who tells you that this is not a horror movie is trying to lie to you because they have messed up ideas about what it, horror is like it's it's one the of the only pivotal best... one... no go for it one of the pivotal sequences in this movie is essentially a haunted house sequence yes and it is terrifying and gripping yes uh it and is the also... only best picture winner considered a horror film it's only one of six horror films to be nominated for best picture uh and it's only one of three films to win all five of the major categories so it like it didn't just win best picture it it won that year's oscars and i don't think it is exaggerating to say that a large part of that is due to the performances that we get like it's not just anthony hopkins although i would like to return to him specifically in just a moment like it is also Jodie Foster, who is coming off of an Oscar nomination or win for The Accused. Um, it is her being willing to get a little grimy. It is, um, you know, this sort of dirty story. <laughs> like, people willing to take this kind of dirty and uncomfortable story and dress it up with the polish of the actors and the performances um except that that 
sentence doesn't mean anything because part of what makes these performances so successful is the actors willing to get down into the dirt with the story. I don't know what I'm talking well, and, about. And I mean, it, like, I mean, <sighs> many actresses, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Meg Ryan, both turned it down because they thought it was too gruesome. Um, Laura oh, yeah. was considered, <laughs> but the studio didn't think she'd be a good fit, which fair. Um, I, I think a lot of what makes Silence of the Lamb works is Demi. Uh, Demi, both in terms of his his camera and like his like his aesthetic and stylistic choice, but also Demi is a deeply empathic filmmaker. Empathic, empathetic, whichever. Empathetic. Um, empathetic, empathetic filmmaker. He treats all of his characters with deep empathy, including like the two serial killers. Um, and I think that shows through. And he's deeply invested in getting you, the audience, to be to see things through the character's eyes. So there are so many direct to camera addresses or ever so slightly not to camera addresses. Uh, that final sequence, the haunted house scene, is from the perspective of the, you know, the serial killer who's trying to kill um Clary Starling. It is it, it's incredible the look of the movie and how nothing no movie I know is shot like it. You know, no one is staring that deep into the camera. That's an incredibly tough thing for actors to do it's very unnatural um and him able to to get those performances out of the actors doing something that unnatural is is a real credit to to him as well as to them so like, at this I, point i would like this oh sorry i was gonna say i don't want to take anything away from the actors and i don't want to take anything away from the director it's obviously a tour de force of a film uh where everyone involved was just bringing their absolute a plus game Yes. Um, so at this juncture, I would like us to rewind time a little bit and visit with Manhunter, the first appearance of this character on screen, uh, portrayed by a very young Brian Cox. Um, so this this was the first crack that anybody had at translating this character from the page onto the screen. Um, and I would like to read a quote from Brian Cox's recently released um, memoir, mm -hmm. uh, where he says, um, "The nature of the role, the nature of the role, lends itself to myriad interpretations, like the great classical roles of Macbeth or Iago." I played down the psychosis. A chief difference between my portrayal and Tony's was that Tony played him crazy, whereas I played him insane. And there's a difference between madness and insanity. Tony was scary and very grand gugnol, but that wasn't my and Michael Mann's take. Our take was, this guy is an intellectual. He's very, very clever, but if you saw him in the street, you wouldn't look twice at him. He wouldn't stand out for his manners or his clothes or some kind of exaggerated charisma. He's just an ordinary-looking, sounding, and acting guy who happens to have an absolutely razor-sharp brain. I'm very interested in this because I think that Brian Cox comes the closest to playing this character as a very like he's not mundane but he gives the appearance of being mundane like brian cox's hannibal is the closest to somebody that you or i might encounter in the real world that exists and i don't think that is true for the later interpretations of the character but he is clearly grounding his hannibal in like some semblance of reality I mean, I, I think it's telling, like, you, you, made, you made the comment that is, is commonly cited but wrong, that um, 
you know, Anthony Hopkins is only in 12 minutes of Silence of the Lambs. And and regardless <laughs> of how much time he's in, he he makes an absolutely indelible impression. Anyone who walks out of that movie, that's that's what they're talking about first. Manhunter, Cox makes an impression, but when I saw it, the first thing I was thinking of is like, A, cocaine helped produce this movie, and I love it, and B, the, <laughs> um, like, uh, uh, William Peterson as Will Graham makes a bigger impression, and the filters that they put on the camera, like the blue and the green and the red, that makes a bigger impression, like the tone and the mood. Um, Cox is a super fascinating character, but he, but Hannibal Lecter is not a breakout character you know people were not dressing up as as hannibal lecter that halloween or every subsequent no, halloween his, for all time his, yeah his lecter is very much in a supporting role which i think is appropriate to the story that they're telling because the yeah. story of red dragon is not about hannibal lecter it is about will graham trying to catch um a different serial killer much like in silence of the lambs but by by the time we get to silence the lambs hannibal is asserting himself much more on Clarice and the rest of the story. What I so I actually what what I really love about the structure of Red Dragon is that you you it's the same structure of Silence of the Lambs in the sense of we're going the FBI is going to Hannibal to try to catch a serial killer, but I love that in Red Dragon Will Graham has this entire long relationship with Lecter pre-established. That is such a fun and clever wrinkle, and I'm always shocked that Red Dragon was the first book that Harris wrote in the series. Like he. You were asking earlier why this is such an indelible character. I think that structure and that idea of, like, A, it's cool to have, we're going to have one serial killer hunt another serial killer. But also, this one serial killer traumatized and broke this FBI agent who has to now go back and, you know, and and get his help is, there's a lot of good psychology there. Um, or, like, psychological depth to all the, to, to the, the relationship triangles there. For sure. And, you know, there's there's so much depth that Brian Fuller will then come and make a three season TV show yeah, about yeah. that relationship that existed before um, before Red Dragon. But I, I just want to I just kind of want to finish up here by saying that I think what Brian Cox does is lay a really good baseline for the character of Hannibal Lecter. Like, I don't mean to diminish his place in this timeline or this iconography, but he is. Apart from Gaspard Ulliel in Hannibal Rising, like Brian Cox is the character that has the least amount of time. Brian Cox is the actor who has the least amount of time with this character. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's still pretty incredible that he is has still left the impression that he did. Yeah, yeah. So, so then we move, then we move from one extreme, well, not extremes, then we move from Brian Cox to Anthony Hopkins. And... I don't I don't know that I agree with Brian Cox's interpretation of the way that Anthony Hopkins is playing Hannibal. I I I think that he is playing him psych as a psychopath, but I don't necessarily think that he's playing him as like crazy. I think Anthony Hopkins is still playing a Hannibal Lecter that is very deeply in control of his actions. Yes. He is just a little bit more unhinged because he can be like he this is what I think of as being like, well, I have played all my cards. I have lost the game. I don't have to pretend to be a human anymore. But that doesn't mean that he gives up everything that it doesn't mean that he gives up like his trappings of intellectualism or civility or 
like the the kind of arts and culture that still make up a huge component of who he is and what he loves and and he's just like i don't have to hide the fact that i'm a monster anymore right and that i i derive enjoyment from like psychologically tormenting people um but but such an important part of the character is that he he is like an intellectual elite and he hates gauche people. Uh, I, someone someone yes. described him as a gentleman. Um, he has finesse. I'm about to read. Yep, I'm about to read that quote from Hopkins. Yeah. But I, I, I just love the idea that he, he, he does not tolerate rudeness. He does not tolerate gauche, uh, gaucheness or, or incivility um, in others. Well, and he, has, he still has rules. Yeah. Yeah, he still has rules. Yeah. Um. He is like kind of the very definition of orange and blue morality, where like he or um lawful evil. Like mm-hmm. he has he has a code by which he lives. It is just so far outside of what we like our moral touch points. Dimensions, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what what Anthony Hopkins has to say about um Hannibal Lecter, uh this is from a interview that he and Jodie Foster did with Vanity Fair. I met Jonathan Demi on a Saturday night in London. He came to the play and I asked him out of curiosity, why would you cast me? I'm not even an American actor. He said, well, I saw you in The Elephant Man playing Dr. Trevis, which puzzled me. I said, why would that resonate with you? He said, well, because Trevis is a really good man. And I said, okay, well, what about Hannibal Lecter? He said, I think he's a good man. He's a very bright man. He's trapped in an insane brain. And I thought, oh, I think he was right, because what Lecter is really, it's an old-fashioned word to use, but he's a gentleman. He has finesse. He's not Buffalo Bill. When he kills, it's fast and deadly. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that Clarice, when he sees her and they get deeper into the conversations, he knows he would never harm her. A male he would, he'll take on any male, but he promises, I'll never come after you. Because he respects her too much, loves her in a way. Even though he needles her about her cheap shoes and her good handbag, he knows the feminine nature. I think there's a lot of female in him. We're all ambidextrous. We all have that, the anima and the animus. I don't necessarily agree with everything, that Hopkins is saying here about Hannibal, but I do think it is important to understanding how he interprets the character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I I don't love that he qualifies his description of Hannibal as like, well, he's a good man, but trapped in an insane brain. And I honestly, I don't think Hannibal Lecter would appreciate that either because that almost separates Hannibal from what he's doing. Like it almost gives him an excuse for being who he is. And one of the things I've always loved about the character is that he comes across to me in the books and in the performances as somebody who is utterly unapologetic for who he is and what he does. Yes. And it's also why Hannibal Rising is trash, because the one thing we never needed was an explanation for why he does what he does. I am of the opinion that 99% of prequels do not need to exist. That's correct. <laughs> um, because yeah. we already know what happens. Right. We already and know what the end point is. And if if the original work is good enough, we already have a sense of who the character is psychologically. I don't need to know that um, 
uh, you know, Han Solo got his last name because he had no family or whatever. I hate uh, that. I hate that and, so much. And, and, you know, similarly, I don't need to know that Hannibal became a cannibal because he was... He watched living... Nazis eat his sister? Whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he's a cannibal because that's what his... That's what's messed up with his brain. And... And it's more fun to watch how that plays out than to find out how it all got started. And yeah, I also don't really love his take on the fact that um, Hannibal doesn't go after Clarice in a physical way because she's a woman. I think that... Actually, I'm going to read Jodie Foster's quote that I have written down here now because I think that is... That is what I see more. Um... She says, Lecter needs, wants to be seen as human, and if you don't see him as human, you're going to be eaten. So I think there's something really beautiful about the fact that they relate to each other's humanity. When Lecter takes in Clarice's pain, when he breathes it in or hears her story about the lambs, it's not because it's a story that's filled with blood and gore. It's a tiny story of pain, and to him, that's what connection is. So I think that his connection with Clarice is less or his protectiveness of over Clarice is less that she's a woman and more that he senses on an empathetic level that she is smart and sensitive in a way at first that he can manipulate and after in a way that he can use. I also, think I, that I, he, I, I also think that he deeply respects her. Like she, she is intelligent, like she's courteous, which which gets the foot in the door, and she's open with him, mm -hmm. which you know helps. But she is also, you know, I, I I doubt that Hannibal would see her as you know his intellectual equal, but she is at least a worthy intellectual, you know, sparring partner, conversationalist, whatever. Um, yeah, and she's honest with him, which he always yeah. shows that he appreciates. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And she doesn't. Like, her fear of him is very honest, um, but it also does not prevent her from trying to get what she needs from him. And I think that coming from a tiny um, feminine person, I think that kind of, it's its not fearlessness because she is afraid of him, but that kind of bravery, I think, is very appealing to him. It is something that plays out um, in a really compelling way in the TV show, actually. Um, there is a lot of Clarice Starling in um, Hugh Dancy's Will Graham, just in mm -hmm. terms of, I think, what attracts Hannibal to him and the games that they play. Um, but I, I, I just think that... Um, I think Jodie Foster hits the nail on the head when she says that Lecter not only needs to be seen, but he needs to be seen in a particular way. And like everything he does is scripted in a way to control the narrative of how people see and react to him. And by the time mm -hmm. he is in his life where Anthony Hopkins is playing him, he does not need to pretend to be normal anymore. So Hopkins doesn't even bother. Right. Uh, and last, we come to the TV show that should not have worked as well as it did. <laughs> um, 
I admit that when I first heard that Brian Fuller was adapting Hannibal into a TV show, a prequel TV show, I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorite movies, and I truly could not fathom what this show was going to be. Little did I know that it would turn out to be something that I truly consider to be one of the best TV shows that has ever, one of the best TV shows that's ever been made. Um, it, it doesn't. It didn't help that uh, the movie Hannibal, which came out in two thousand one, is pretty much trash. I I think it's not. Um, it's, it's not mm, great. Mm, no, not, it is fine. Yeah, ha- Hannibal the movie is what you get when you run Hannibal Lecter through a like Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. like a Hollywood big machine. budget filter. Yeah, like Silence of the Lambs had no expectation of being a huge hit, so it didn't try to be. Hannibal the movie expected to be a huge hit, and I think it got a lot of its edges filed off in a way, which is weird to say considering the brain-eating scene at the I end. Was, I was going to say, I this and also what Gary Oldman looks like, I don't know if the edges got filed off this too badly. Uh, I, well, I never but read the source still, material, so I don't know. It's still a mediation, I think, between the, like haunted thriller nature of silence of the lambs and something a little bit glossier a little bit easier to consume um and i think that 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 attempt to find a balance between those two things means that it did not fall comfortably anywhere yes and just sort of turned into like a weird because the ending is also not as unhinged as the ending in the book Everything I know about the book of Hannibal is that the movie is wild and the book is even more wild. Oh, yeah. Um, no, the book, the book, I mean, spoiler alert for a book that is, you know, 30 years old. Um, In the book, Clarice straight up runs away with him. Yeah, right. They end up together, which is insane. It is, but it also, like, if you think about the position that the the story puts her in... Like, I had to think about this critically as an adult human being, but, like, at that point, her career is in tatters. None of her colleagues respect her. Her whole kind of deal is tainted by her relationship with this criminal. Like, there there are ways in which the book kind of makes clear that she's been painted into this corner and that one of her only outlets to retain her agency is to just give in completely to Hannibal. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, it then is. we have Red Dragon, and then we have Hannibal Rising. So we've had, you know, in terms of Hannibal material before Hannibal the TV show came out, it, it wasn't the finest crop, you know? No, like, I, 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 I would think say... Man, Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs are the best of the filmed a, a, a oh. cinematic Hannibal's um, for sure. Well, yeah. and Red Dragon is Red Dragon is even easier to consume than Hannibal is. Like it is yeah, that I is a much like... more straightforward. It's I mean Red Dragon. I I don't think Red Dragon is as good as Hannibal by virtue of not being as ambitious. Like it mm-hmm. is just sort of a straightforward. Like now we're telling a thriller. I think that Ed Norton does fine. Yeah, I think it's fine i Um, I think ray fines is amazing yeah i think richard armitage is better 
Well, sure, of course you would, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the material that we have, and I I will say that I think that Brian Fuller does a really good job of drawing on all of the available history and material. Like there are shades of almost everything in these other stories that kind of come together to piece into the Hannibal TV show, including Hannibal Rising, uh, particularly in the second season when we learn a little bit about. Um, his aunt Murasaki, who is a character in Hannibal Rising, that they have weird sexual tension over, um, and we get to see like the Hannibal estate, and so there's there's even some stuff in there that Brian Fuller manages to spin like straight into gold in a really impressive way. Mm-hmm. Um, but regarding Mads Mikkelsen as Hannibal Lecter, here is the last quote I'm going to read to kind of round out how our three actors perceive this character. Um, I believe Lecter can talk on everybody's level. Oh, this is from an interview that he did with Entertainment Weekly right around when the first season of Hannibal was uh, starting to be released. I believe Lecter can talk on everybody's level and he sees what Will is struggling with. I think that's the first time for Will that somebody's actually understood him and what he's struggling with. Will is full of empathy, but he has no idea what to do with it. The empathy is killing him. He can't control it. It's controlling him. And Hannibal has the exact opposite power. That empathy is something that he uses as a tool. There's a potential in Will that Will is not aware of yet. He might be one of the few members of my selective club. So yes, Hannibal loves him and he will go far to help him. But if it's the help Will needs, I'm not so sure. (laughs) And that quote, I think, lands on a couple of really interesting things, um, both in Hannibal's Hannibal's Need to Be Seen uh, that Jodie Foster mentioned earlier um, and the way in which he expresses um, care for people is not what we would see as being like affection or care. Uh, Uh But I think in his mind, I think in his mind, he is always taking care of Will. He's just doing it in a very particular way that a normal, I I shouldn't use that word, but like as a right thinking um, morality based human being would not consider to be appropriate. (laughs) Right. I love I love Mickelson as Hannibal because I think he comes down really neatly in between <coughs> in between Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins like he is he's playing somebody who doesn't want to be normal like he wears very well tailored suits oh, hosts extravagant he wears He hosts extravagant dinner parties. Like, this is a man who, unlike Brian Cox's Hannibal, this is a man who wants to be noticed, but he wants to be noticed in a very particular way. And he is not, because he wants to be noticed and he wants to exist in the world, he is not unhinged yet in the way that Anthony Hopkins is, who is playing a Hannibal that has already dealt, who has already played all of his cards and only has one card left to play basically um i think that mickelson gets the sort of temptation aspect of hannibal really really well like everything about hannibal is constructed to attract other people both their attention and also like their friendship and their adoration he wants to be seen by people and he wants to be needed by people and then will Mm -hmm. graham comes along and he's like oh 
oh, hey, you might see the world the way that I do. Will Graham is such a unique opportunity for him. Like, not only can he get Will Graham to see him as he is constructed, but the whole show is built around the idea that he also thinks he can get Will Graham to see him as he really is. Yeah. And that's one of the most interesting ideas in the whole show, I think, is these two people who are striving desperately to be seen. I mean, and... the, the whole first season is basically a seduction um, to try to seduce the whole... Will. I, I like the, the whole the first whole like show. I, it's the whole show, but it's like it's especially strong in in up until there's the realization that he is a cannibal, um, which I think is like halfway or more than halfway through the second season. Um, no, by the end of the first season, by so spoilers for this show. Um, but the the first season ends with Hannibal basically manipulating it so that Will goes to prison for the crimes that Hannibal has committed. And by the time that has been orchestrated, that Will knows Will knows what's going on. Like he, but but like he Jack, has Jack realized, doesn't know what's going on until like midway through the second season, right? That's correct. Okay. And then the second season ends with Hannibal burning everything to the ground <laughs> and hopping on a plane to Italy. It's yes, so good. yes. <laughs> um. But yeah, so the, the first season ends with the two of them being able to see the truth of each other for the first time. And then the third season ends with them seeing the truth of each other in a wildly different context. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the end of my sentence was supposed to be there. Um <laughs> But yeah, I think the evolution of this character, like we we start with the most grounded version, we swing wildly to the most unhinged version, and then the version that needs to be existing in the real world, I think slots very neatly in between those two interpretations. And none of them ever feel imitative. Like no one is no, ever trying. No. Mickelson is never trying to do Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> I, I think that's the most exciting part about the character is that, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to leave aside uh, Hannibal Rising here, uh, but there there are three indelible performances and they are all entirely unique. Um, and, and it would have been so easy for either Fuller or Mickelson to be like, obviously when, when people think of Hannibal, they think of Anthony Hopkins. So let's, let's do a little kind of thing. Um, he does it. But that's, he does it that's just not there. once. He does it once. Hmm. And I, I can't even remember season, him doing it. In the second season, it's a blink and you'll miss it. It's when Hannibal is finally in prison, and or maybe beginning of the third season, it must have been then. And he is talking about the last time an orderly was in the same room as him. And there is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it scene of him slurping up the orderly's ear. Mm, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And staring, like, staring dead-on into the camera. And it is a, it is a very, like, moment reminiscent of Anthony Hopkins, but different enough that it still lands, I think, in homage territory rather than imitation territory. Right, sure, sure. <laughs> Um, 
So I also, like, I guess obviously, my... I, I have to shout out the food porn of the Hannibal TV show is without par. Uh, it should have won an Emmy specifically for food, uh, food dressing, food photography. Um, yeah. Janice Poon, the food stylist of this show, ran a post-episode blog while the show was airing where she would talk about every single dish that she made for the show mm-hmm. and the thought process she went through because her she not only had to think about the dish, she had to think about how it would start life as human flesh yep, yep. and how how that would then what that would then be disguised as how it would be disguised what the cooking process would be and then like is this something that my actors actually have to eat how am i going to like what am i going to make this out of so that they can actually like eat what i have created for them right it was fascinating <laughs> so my final question that i would like to return to is why do we think this character continues to endure in our pop cultural consciousness the way that he does part of it is the name uh they they say it in science of the lambs like hannibal the cannibal rolls off the tongue pretty well good job richard harris on that one um i i think it's because of silence of the lambs i think that that anthony hopkins portrayal demi shooting of it just you know even today, you've got people dressing up as him, as, as that interpretation of the character, like for Halloween. Um, the the face mask, you know, the whole thing. It's, it's, such, it's such a look. Um, and the fact that the character has the ability to not just be that, but to be Mads, to be um, uh, Brian Cox, means that there is, like, he's a psychologically interested, or interesting, and interested, but he's a psychologically interesting character that, that good actors want to try to grapple with going back to your your cox quote about him being like uh, macbeth or iago um so from an actor's standpoint there's an interest in playing him and and putting your own impression on him from a, a pop culture standpoint he's you know deeply seared in the in the cultural psyche now for 30 years in one particular flavor um but it's a fascinating and powerful you know version of him um and i think those two things together mean that there's there's always interest in having another another crack at what he might be while at the same time you know there there's that indelible version that remains in everyone's mind um cuz we're, we're obviously both big Hannibal the TV show people but it always struggled with ratings um and you know as as amazing as Mickelson is he is not the new public face of you know if you ask someone yo Hannibal Lecter eight out of 10 of them are thinking uh, Anthony Hopkins first and maybe only, um, you know, I, I don't know if I kind of trailed off there. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. Um, yeah, I kind of don't have anything to follow that. Okay, so, sorry that I took all the all the fun comments. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, but just in case anybody missed it, my stuck in your head is related to the fact that in Dracula, no one knows they're in Dracula, and in Hannibal, no one knows they're in Hannibal. <laughs> I, I will say, so I, I rewatched the first, like, maybe six or seven episodes of Hannibal um, for this, and I, I do think it's an absolute masterclass in, like, 
what is dramatic irony. Um, along with like five other things it's a masterclass in, but it is, it is so fun as the audience to be like, Ooh, but that's human. Uh, as Lawrence Fishburne is like, this is a delicious duck. Um, or whatever. Yeah, I've heard the first season of Hannibal described as, like, we, the audience, have been shown a bomb, and we are just waiting for it to explode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the second season, we are shown that explosion, because the first episode of the second season ends with the same scene that the second season closes on, which is Hannibal has just stabbed everybody in the gut. <laughs> um. So I think that Brian Fuller plays with expectations in a really interesting way. How many times yeah. can I say interesting? Uh, Brian Fuller plays with expectations and our meta knowledge of the character um, in a very compelling way to construct <laughs> to construct his story. Yes. Uh, you can say a lot of things about Brian Fuller. Uh, boring or workmanlike or straightforward are not not words to describe him. Uh, absolutely not yeah all right well i i don't have anything uh else to add nope i was gonna say you want to give us a recap on what we're talking about next episode yeah uh so next episode we are going to dive into the multiverse uh multiverses are having a real bit of a moment right now uh and going back the last couple years uh we're not gonna be talking about doctor strange and the multiverse of madness a little too soon people may or may not be going to movie theaters may or may not have time to go uh we are going to talk about everything everywhere all at once so this is a big old spoiler for a thing that i believe not yet available on streaming um I have the feeling that those of you who listen to this podcast uh, like and have probably seen everything ever all at once. Um, but that's that's just a warning in advance. Um, we're also going to be looking at Into the Spider-Verse and Spider-Man Far From Home, the most recent Tom Holland uh, Spider-Man. Um, so we've got two Spider-Mans and a, an indie darling. Um, they're all dealing with multiverses in very different ways. Uh, and we're just going to sort of be exploring w- how they're using the multiverse as a storytelling tool and as a way to build up or subvert audience uh, audience expectations and probably talking about why the multiverse might be having a moment right now, why it's an interesting storytelling tool that a lot of um, specifically film and television media is sort of playing with. Yeah, I'm into it. Um... So you can find our show on all the places at Did You Do Your Homework or DYDYH Podcast. Uh, You can find our sister show if you are craving more content from mostly me. Uh, Our sister show, Love Ya, which I record with Pete's wife, Marin, that updates on the same feed on Opposing Weeks, where we talk about rom-coms or teen cinema. Our last episode was on the Lucy Hale vehicle, The Hating Game, and our next episode will be on the Netflix uh, YA adaptation of Heartstoppers. Very excited for that one. (laughs) Uh, Pete, where can people find you on the socials? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, and you can find me on Letterboxd. I think if you search for the same thing, I'll pop up. But my handle there is P Romberg, uh, R-H-O-M-B-E-R-G. Uh, and you can find me pretty much everywhere at Magical Martha. 
Um, I'm not going to plug my newsletter because I haven't updated it since January, but you can follow me on Letterboxd where I rate all of the movies that I watch. Um, I don't review them because I'm lazy. And I'm the opposite. I usually give a quick review and uh, no rating Um, because in the moment I find the rating idea stressful. Uh. I did just I did just write a one sentence review of Death on the Nile, which I watched last night. And it was simply that I wish I hope that Kenneth Branagh makes a million of these movies. I will watch every single one of them. And my 40 character review of Silence of the Lambs, which I watched last night in preparation for this, was uh, 40 Fs in a row to, you know, mimic. Uh, yeah, I mean, whatever. It's a five star movie. What what, what more needs to be said? <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. I don't think I'm missing anything at this point. So we will see you all next time. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. Nice. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go eat dinner now. Yeah, I'm going to, I don't know. I'm very tired. Uh, go to bed. Yeah, I, I might go to bed. Who knows?